As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Muddy Knees Media. The heating's on, it's getting darker earlier and earlier, so why not cheer yourself up this November with a subscription to The Athletic for just £1 a week. For only 100 of your English pence every seven days, you'll get unrivaled analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, plus a breaking news service and ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts. Sign up today at theathletic.com totally. Totally Football Show. Big Baby insists he was set up to fail as the doomed head of a once great empire cracks under the pressure. Away from Manchester United, not even spurious officiating can separate red and blue at the Etihad. Four more goals for Chelsea as Hakim says, Ziyech we can mount a title challenge. And after these seismic events in America, attention now focuses on the most influential man in Britain. Just what will Marcus Rashford do next? This is the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Yes, hello, listener. Very happy Monday to you all across the world. People waking up to a brand new dawn, an age of no more unwanted, unvetted, divisive media output. Much of it blacked out, so most never even see it. That's right. Pay-per-view Premier League football seems to be dead. Uh, I'm Matt Davis-Adams. For that, I'm sorry. Jimbo's world's strongest manning it, so I'll be keeping his seat warm for the next few shows. Wait, come back. We've got a stellar panel. Uh, please join me in saying hello to Jack Lang of The Athletic and Moustaches, appropriately enough, as November is here. Hi, Jack. Evening, Matt. Uh, Daniel Story of the iFootball365, the Crystal Palace programme, and Patrick Bamford's old school is also on board. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Matt. And it's a big welcome back to Flying Winger turned tip-top pundit Pat Nevin. Hi, Pat. Hello, Matt. Long time no see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's been all of three days. Uh, well, it's been another absorbing topsy-turvy weekend of Premier League action with top spot changing hands no less than three times from Southampton on Friday to Spurs and then Leicester on Sunday. But let's start our look back with the marquee matchup of the round at the Etihad. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Deep into Liverpool territory, finds Kevin De Bruyne and that's a super turn by Jesus! And when City needed inspiring, Gabriel Jesus provides that inspiration and City a level. 
on as even in satisfyingly drizzly Manchester on Sunday then as Manchester City and Liverpool played out a 1-1 draw. Mohamed and Jesus both made their respective presences felt. ADB missed a penalty, but it was the dark overlord that is VAR, which will no doubt be dominating the back pages as you pour your coffee this morning, listener. Uh, we'll get to handball decisions soon enough. First, lineups. Klopp only went and started with Firmino, Salah, Mane and Jota. Daniel, did it work? I think it did in the, in the first half. Um, it it was probably a four two four, but Mane and, and and Jota do so much work off the ball, and Firmino does as well. That it's it, it's a basically a hybrid of a four two four, four four two, four two three one, just lots of players in the attacking half, um, and they they did really well. They blocked off the passing lanes to Rodri. They starved Manchester City of options, and City looked a bit spooked in that first. 20 minutes as if they were just passing the ball across the back going well we don't really know who to pass to here and I think eventually De Bruyne realised he could find some space and Farron Torres probably did as well and and clearly the missed penalty will leave Guardiola thinking they should have won the game but I liked it from Klopp I really did it felt like something truly courageous in a big game which could easily have gone wrong but didn't. Um, Pat, it was a, a great first half, a, a decent first hour and then a pretty humdrum final third. Do you put that down to, to neither side wanting to get beaten or fatigue or a bit of both or a bit of something else? A whole bunch of things. Um, it, it just got a little bit bitty. There was a couple of injuries, weren't there? A couple of stoppages as soon as you start doing the, the changes, that sort of thing. So the, the flow kind of went out of the game. And yeah, partially there's a, a fear of making the mistake, being the one who got it wrong. But there, there wasn't that ultra positivity there was in the first half. And you know what usually happens in a game if you get a fairly early goal? Um, it kind of opens it up. You know, both teams go for it. And even if it goes back to 1-1, it doesn't usually close the game down again. But in this game, it kind of did slowly but surely close down again. Um, certainly the first half was by a long way the better. Um but 1-1, by the end of it, I don't think anyone can complain too much, apart from possibly Kevin De Bruyne, who missed the penalty. By the way, how shocked did he look that he missed it? <laughs> never seen a more surprised player. What, that didn't go in? I don't understand. <laughs> it does not compute. So, uh, no, it was, it was an intriguing game. Interesting about the, 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 the tactics of it. You know, when one team was playing 4-2-3-1, as you say, the other was playing that, and then the went for a 4-3-3 and it was similar to that as well. But you're right, these both teams are quite capable of being fluid in their systems and uh, they were a bit matched up and as the game went on they seemed to match up to each other more and more. Jack, it's handy that we've um, got you on as a Brazilian football expert and all, uh, so you can evaluate City's goal scorer Gabriel Jesus. Five goals in his last six games now, is he, is he finally showing the consistency that makes him a viable long-term successor for Aguero and, and did he mean the touch for the goal? Spoiler, no, he didn't. I think he may have. Maybe maybe not for it to drop that perfectly, but I, I think he had something of that sort in mind. Definitely definitely pleased to see him doing well. I think after the dip he had, I think it was easy to forget just how much of an impact he made when he first arrived. And he was, you know, slowed by injuries. Um, obviously, Aguero came back into into Guardiola's good books and hit a really rich vein of form. And so it's tough for a young developing player to to stay on the same trajectory when he's not playing week in week out but certainly I think his his versatility is really useful we saw him drift to the right a few times today he's mainly playing on the right for Brazil at the moment and I think that's perhaps somewhere we could see him more for City if Guardiola fancies tweaking it a little bit but I, I thought it was a fantastic goal really did strange to me that you think of all the great toe-poked finishes 
I wrote this on Twitter, so apologies for anyone who wrote it there. Obviously, you think of Brazilians and great stepovers and, you know, magic, but most of the, the toe pokes you can think of have been scored by Brazilians. Think about Ronaldinho at Stamford Bridge, uh, Ronaldo against Turkey in the World Cup, Edmundo against Man United, half of Romario's career. And I don't think this will go down quite at that level, but it was a good finish. Can, can I jump in with toe pokes with Brazilians? I mean, steady on. David Neri in <laughs> Brazil with one of the best ever toe pokes you'll see in your life. They made the mistake of scoring it very early on in the game and got Brazil angry. Scotland lost 4-1. But yeah, toe pokes are a great skill. So yes, it's Brazilian, but it's a brilliant skill. Um, we better talk about the penalties, Daniel. I don't think there's much doubt about the one that Liverpool were awarded. Um, Roy Keane calling Kyle Walker an idiot on Sky, which mm. doesn't seem that helpful. Uh, then the one which went against Joe Gomez, a similar situation to what we saw in, in the earlier game between Leicester and Wolves. And, and the consensus seems to be, well, it shouldn't be a penalty, but it just is now. Yeah, I'm, the, I would say on the first one, it was slightly controversial because Raheem Sterling was fouled at the other end and, and didn't go to ground. And we had a huge amount of noise from, uh, not on this show actually, but a huge amount of noise from from certain pundits about calling players divers last weekend for going to ground when they felt contact. Well, this is why they do it. Because if they don't do it, you risk the referee not giving you the free kick. And, and subconsciously or otherwise, referees are more likely to give you the free kick if, if you go to ground. Um, the second one... I, I thought the the outrage was a little bit manufactured. I, I thought that would probably be a penalty last season. You know, it was far enough away from him. His arm was out his side. He wasn't... I, I think the slow, super slow motions always make it look bad. And as soon as the players, the referees go over to that screen and look and watch it in 10 times slow-mo, it's always going to be given. But I didn't think that was as controversial as the, the Max Kilmore one given earlier in the day. Jack, you're nodding. I thought it was a penalty. I mean, at, at the risk of stoking the flames of, of anger, but I, it, it's, I understand why people are annoyed at the rule, um, and I think there is often. I think in, in the Kilman case, it was it was more obvious because he was closer to him. I think there is uh, an intuition that most of us have that if a player can't do anything about it, then that does sometimes feel a little bit unfair. But this this rule about kind of your hand being in a natural position, i.e within the bounds of the rest of your body. I can see why they've put it in place because, you know, people say, well, it, well, it wasn't intentional, but it's very hard to judge intentionality. You know, you could easily imagine cases where a player does kind of dangle an arm out with the idea in the back of their mind that they might block it with their arm, and but they, you know, they play it innocent. So I think that the, the rule as it is does take the, the judgment of what's in someone's head out of the equation, which I... I understand the thinking behind. Um, yeah, the, the Kilman one struck me as a lot more grating than the Gomez one, just because I think that's due to the distance between the kicker and the hand. But I, even as I said that, I realised I'm not really sure either way. And this is the debate, isn't it? What do you make of it, Pat? Um, right, well, everybody, I was going to say knows the rules. Everyone should know the rules by now, but we don't. Um, and the interpretation of the rules. Right, the interpretation of the rules, they were both penalty kicks. Clear and simple. That's the rule. It was slightly outside. The concept of intention and being intentional doesn't exist in these situations anymore. So banish it from your mind. As soon as I hear someone saying the phrase common sense, I think, yeah, we used to have that, but we don't have that now. Because there's these two opposite sides of a, a kind of mirror, right? A reflection. One is, well, we want common sense. 
and also we want you can have uh, the same rules to be played for everyone all the time. No, no, they, they're two different things. They are actually two very different things. If you're going to get common sense, you're going to get subjectivity. But what you don't want is subjectivity half the time. There is no win for the people who are trying to make these rules up just now. I don't particularly like it. I would like intentionality to be back in, but it ain't at the moment. Um, so you're going to have to get used to these rules. Uh, not a fan, but that's what the rules are just now. So don't complain and moan at the referees. Complain and moan at the people who make the, the rules and adapt the rules in a certain way. Um, I don't, I'm sure everyone's checked us out and done the maths on it because I've tried to. The number of penalties average over the last 10 years in the Premier League. Any guesses, anyone? Average per season? Yeah. A hundred and... Between 100 and 110 or something like that? That's a brilliant, brilliant guess. Right, 92.5. We are on course just now. I've kind of projected it out. Um, I know we're, we've had enough American elections, but <laughs> <laughs> and some projections. We're on course for 180 this season. 180. Now, that changes everything. So don't moan about it. Just learn to A, live with it, and B, use it in your favour. And that, that's that's the only answer this season. And it might change next season. Hopefully it will, for the better. But this is going to change football. I started looking through the, all the games that have been won or drawn by penalty kicks this season. I chucked it in the second week. I stopped. Just too many. It's absolutely incredible this season. Um, the other big talking point to come from the game, again, it is fitness, fatigue and injuries. Trent Alexander-Arnold pulling out of the England squad uh, after sustaining a, a calf injury. James Blade tweeting at the Totally Show asking, will footballers last the season? Uh, Mark chips in, is it too late for the Premier League to go back on their decision against the five-sub rule? Jurgen Klopp, keen on that, Daniel, but the counter-argument is obviously it, it's massively weighted towards teams like Liverpool and Manchester City and Manchester United and not Burnley and Sheffield United etc and therefore it's not particularly fair. Yeah and and they were given a again to harp on about recent events they were given a democratic vote in which they needed 14 to to pass it and they didn't get enough of those votes which suggests exactly what you said that the bigger clubs voted for it and other clubs didn't. They already have an advantage in that they have deeper squads of of higher quality players to to bring in I think they do enough medical analysis that you know Arsene Wenger used to talk about the red zone they can tell when players are are at their limit the one thing I do have sympathy for for the managers and it's not just because of the soft tissue injuries it's also about Covid itself is is the the Nations League and the the international breaks in which they're forced to play three games over the next two weeks which seems fast and and do so in 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 all corners of the globe which seems farcical to my mind um, I don't. I think if we had our time again, and UEFA had their time again, I know they don't want to put off what they consider to be a flagship competition. But um, I think it would have been far easier if the Nations League had taken a um, a period off during the COVID crisis, and we could play friendlies between countries who um, had low rates and allowed travel between them. But other than that, it seems like an unnecessary evil. All right, so that was Manchester City-Liverpool. While we're talking Merseyside versus Manchester, let's spin back to Saturday lunchtime at Goodison Park. James Rodriguez returned for Everton, but it was Carlo Ancelotti who dropped a bollock this time. His team went down to a third straight defeat against ever-inconsistent Manchester United. First time in 14 years an Ancelotti side have lost three on the spin in the league. Uh, he said they need to stabilise their defence. Um, Pat, it's your old club. What what else has gone wrong for them other, other than Pickford and Cohen in the last few weeks? Because they had such a good start. There's a decent argument that 
you know, they were overperforming <laughs> at the start. I think we could argue that was definitely the case. Um, but they were really settled. You know, the, the, the balance of the team was absolutely superb at the start of the season. And it only needed one stroke, two players um, to go out, and that balance was suddenly changed. Now, I know Bernard scored at the weekend, but they miss Richarlison when he's not there because he gives you something else. He gives you something going beyond a little bit more. Because um, Rodriguez, Hamas is great. We love what he does, but he's not going beyond. You know, he's, he's just not going to do that. Dominic Cavalier will, but it's a lot on his head. So I, I think they miss, you know, that energy there. Um, and, okay, they're, they're not going to be a team in the end that's going to win the league. But if they had everyone fit and all their players fit for every single game, yeah, they'd be up doing really well. But one and at the most two of those first choice starters missing and Everton are still a distance off. And uh, I think that's kind of what they're missing at the moment. What Everton do have, and I think it's probably should be factored into the the title when it's decided, is that gorgeous sweeping camera that tracks the play from the side of the pitch. I I think that's the first time I've seen that in the Premier League and it's just gorgeous. For the for the United's final goal on the breakaway, it's one of the most cinematic things I've ever seen in football. And yeah, I, I know that's not really the kind of thing we take into account when assessing clubs, but I think they should should deserve a bit of credit for that great goal as well that really reminded me of Italy's goal in the uh, the one that killed off Germany in the 2006 World Cup semi when Gilardino you I'm getting a lot of blank faces here but you can look it up in a minute basically it's carbon copy Gilardino slips the ball in for Del Piero look it up later I have to say wow because the the intelligence that Fernandez takes the whole defense one way and then clips it just a little reverse pass and it all looks so easy. He has distracted the entire defence by doing that. And it's kind of hardly mentioned. The amount of players that don't do that, they kind of run blindly and then play a pass that they don't quite get through. It was lovely. It was genius. It was absolutely fantastic to see that. That was a great goal. And he, he feels like a, an absolute bellwether player for Manchester United at the moment when he is not necessarily even just you know, on form himself, but given the time by an opponent to find space in between those lines, it really does feel like that when Bruno turns up, Manchester United turn up, which is um, both a compliment, you know, and a criticism because there are there are very good players around him who should not necessarily require his um, his you know supreme form, but he 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 makes them tick. He does. He dictates the tempo of the play when he drops deep and and composes the play in midfield. He is one of the best players in the Premier League. There's no doubt about that. Um, they just need to make sure that you know he can do that every week, and that the players around him can, when he isn't quite at it, can can kind of seize the initiative off him. Because yeah, he is Manchester United at the moment, to my mind. Yeah, he got his 18th goal. He's up to 18 goals for United now. Edison Cavani getting his his first as well. Um, Jack, it, it's a long time between this game and United's next game, so, so there's a bit of time for whatever you say about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to, to dissipate and be forgotten because they won here, but you know that means that they're going to lose the next game whenever that is. Seven away wins on the spin in the Premier League, and yet they're 14th behind Newcastle. Can, can you explain it? No, not really, and I don't think anyone at the club can particularly either at the moment it's 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 one of those things I, I after this game I thought about how I'd been looking at United and I, I thought well have you been a bit harsh on them have you uh you know are you expecting too much from Solskjaer but then 
you know, I think it, it is the case that this is a transitional season for a lot of teams. It's not a peak Premier League in terms of the title race. We're not seeing anyone running away with it. All the other teams have lost. City are struggling for consistency. Liverpool too. And even against that backdrop, United are bottom half. And yeah, look, I I don't really think there is a a compromise to be reached between the the anti Solskjaer brigade and the you know the the diehards because I don't think they're going to reconcile that anytime soon. Can I just make a quick argument for him, Jack? Purely um, thinking along the lines of the, the league table, I think we make a lot of decisions. A lot of people make a lot of big snap decisions. It's unbelievably early in the league, and I think people make really jump into things. Uh, Man United are on ten points just now. They got a game in hand. They win that. They're on thirteen. They lost one 0 against. Arsenal, they could have won one nil. There was not much in that game. That those two things, right? One of them a possibility. One of them just about unlucky. They would be on sixteen points level with Southampton. That's that's how tight it is. That's how silly it is. That's how small it is just now. Now, not for a minute saying they're playing brilliantly and they do not look like a team that's going to win the league. But the jumping on saying Sack Solskjaer the other week there, I have to say I was quite taken aback by it. I thought, no, that's this is so early in the league the start that people at Man City had. I thought it was really quite harsh. Daniel, he was right to be cross about this being a a 12.30 kickoff after they'd got back from Turkey, you know, hours earlier. Obviously, we know that that TV is king, but it did feel a bit harsh. Yeah, but I mean, every manager in the Premier League, or at least of of a team in Europe, will have that argument this season because it's... That's the reality. And, and BT get the second pick after Sky. Sky went for Manchester City, Liverpool. They very understandably went for Everton. And 12.30pm on a Saturday is the time that they consider to be their glamour spot. Um, the reality is, is, while I agree with his argument, Sky and BT are his paymasters. So if he has an issue with that, then you know, at the, negotiate that in, or tell the clubs to negotiate that into the TV contracts and they'll probably play less for them. Um, make that decision at that point. But... Um, yeah, I, I had sympathy in that clearly after playing in, in Istanbul and then having a fair amount of travelling to do and then having to tra- probably probably only getting Friday training, maybe a bit on Thursday. Yes, I can see his point, but it's happened for a few years and it'll happen for a few more, I'm afraid. Uh, Marcus Rashford picked up an injury in that game. We're waiting to see the severity of that, but, but that's not why he's been making headlines again this weekend, Pat. I, I wanted to get... Get your take on on a footballer using all the tools at his disposal for good and 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 just being an outstanding human being, basically. Um, yeah, it's been an absolute joy um, to watch him. Um, considering what it used to be like when I played and how difficult it was when you put your head above the parapet and everyone's ready to shoot you down. Um, and watching now the strength you're getting from a number, and it's not just Marcus. You look back at Raheem Sterling and things to say in the right times as well and the number of players that have been able to use their strength and their power in the right ways. And it's, it's been an absolute joy. But the way that Marcus does it with, um, just with a, you know, a comfort, a confidence, but without any arrogance at all, it's just the right thing to do, the right thing to say. So, you know, he's got up in everyone's estimations, uh, but he actually drags the whole of football up a wee bit when he speaks like that. And kind of so much more power to his elbow. I and mean, considering... The, the mad amounts of money that have been spent, and incredible amounts, I say mad, just incredible amounts have had to be spent uh, by the governments, um, the billions upon billions. What he was asking for was absolutely minuscule for something that was truly important. So, well done, Marcus. 
So that was Everton Man United on Saturday. And we're going to jump around a little bit like a like a disinterested House of Pain tribute act. We'll head back to Sunday and specifically the King Power Stadium next. At Paddy Power, we know competition for the remote control can be fierce at the weekends. So in order to give the non-football-loving occupants of your house something to do, here are some of our top suggestions. Go for a walk. Walk the dog. Walk to the shops. Go cycling. Cycle the dog. Recycle the dog. Just go! All very good options, we say. And that's not the only one. If one leg of your 4-plus-fold acker lets you down, get a free bet on all football leagues and all markets. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10, min odds 1 to 5 on each leg on an exclusive exclude. Shop bets, T's and C's apply, 18 plus be gambleaware.org. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Bill Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Party! It hasn't taken him long in this match to tick another box. His first goal against Wolves. And that's the full set now he scored against all of the current teams in the Premier League. Leicester City top of the league. 2016 vibes for the Foxes as they got the better of Wolves at the KP. Thanks to Jamie Vardy's successful first half penalty. He had another one saved. Christian Fuchs was there. Kasper Schmeichel too. Even Wes Morgan got off the bench for a bit. All that was missing was a nonsensical phrase from the manager. And that's six wins on the bounce in all comps for Leicester. Their best ever start to a top flight season. Jack, what's to stop them winning the league again? That's a good question. I think in this in this topsy turvy season, there's no reason for them for them not to be aiming high. I think I like the way that Rogers is able to switch things up now. At times, they got a little bit turgid last season when they got out of form. But I think he's got a few different ways to play. We saw him uh, pick basically three or four central midfielders here with Madison pushing on. I like that. That gives them a a solidity against the better teams. Um, I think it's. They're doing well given the injuries they've had at the back, but they're they're definitely helped by. I've been really impressed by James Justin, like just the way he plays from right wing back, left wing back, tucks in at centre half. He played a couple of those positions earlier today, and I think brings real energy to them. And Fuchs, I think, is probably not going to be around for too long, but he's doing a job. I, I think there's just enough at the back, and the midfield pretty much takes care of itself. There's so much quality there. Pleased to see Madison back starting. He's had a bit of a slow introduction this season, but I just think they've tremendously talented squad, essentially, and, and Rogers does have the smarts to, to develop that extra way of playing. And I feel like, Pat, the, the thing that kind of makes them stand out from some of their contemporaries is, is the recruitment, you know, starting with the fact that they were able to get Brendan Rodgers, but they very rarely seem to seem to make bad buys. Everybody who comes into the squad, even if it takes them a while to get a place, improves it. They make it look annoyingly easy. It's not. It's unbelievably hard to do. They have been doing. And, you know, because the squad loses just big player after big player after big player. And they should not be able to do that. And they keep on doing it. And some of the players they bring in, I look at them and I, I scratch my chin a little bit in my head and go, are you sure? Is he 
good enough? Is he of that level? And then they slowly but surely grow into something that I didn't see. I mean, Telemans, much better player than I gave him credit. Mendy, certainly. You could kind of see where he was going to go. But like of Pratt, you know, is just much, much better player than I gave him credit for. And that's a big thing because, you know, we all love doing this game saying, yeah, yeah, I saw him. Oh, he, he was a stick on. I knew he was going to be great. We all think that, right? But they do it the other way. You think, really? You think so? And yes, they are right time and time again. So, no, it's been a, a joy to see it. Um, and I, I don't know anyone who, you know, out with some very team, teams that are very close to them in the Midlands. I don't know anyone who doesn't like them. And I agree completely with what you were saying there about having a number of different ways to play. They can play a really high-tempo thing with a flying at teams and they can just play soccer punch football. And are they good or what? I mean, against Leeds United. I mean, that was great, wasn't it? Brendan Rodgers before the game. Honestly, it was genius. He told, he told, uh, is it Sky or BT, whoever it was, he said, this is what they do. Here's their weaknesses and this is what we're going to do. And they've done it. <laughs> it was just like... Well, most people know what Leeds' weaknesses are, but he was so confident. He told everybody before the game before doing it. But to completely back up Pat's point, they look to have the next big thing in Premier League central defending in Wesley Fafana, who you know, get the, the other thing they do is they're not afraid to put their money where their mouth is. You know, Tielemann costs forty million, Fafana thirty-six million. These are you know, these are not necessarily cheap buys, but they identify someone and say, The price doesn't matter, we've got we've got enough money that if we identify a player who is we, we, we believe is not just willing to come here, but really wants to come to Leicester City and build something, we're prepared to spend the money on him. And he looks so assured. You know, he, he looks really composed on the ball, passing it out. And yet he's got this sort of Virgil van Dijk height that means he just seems to win everything in the air with barely a, an effort in the jump. He looks, he, you know, Kaglasunku was kind of the, their success story or surprise success story of last season, I guess. But Fafana looks everything. He really does. And he will, I guess, become Johnny Evans's is heir apparent when, when Evans' legs tire. But at the moment, he's a really, really able, you know, accompaniment to Evans at the centre of defence. What about Wolves then, Pat? They got more points than they had at this stage last season. So, so why am I feeling a bit underwhelmed by them? The expectations are, are high against one of these teams. I often look at the amount of team has spent on wages, etc. You know where they should land land in the league really each season. And I think they're probably the best at kind of outperforming what they spend on wages around just now. So the fact that once or twice they might actually drop a little bit and go back down a little bit is absolutely probably acceptable. You know, but mid table where they are just now. You know they're perfectly capable of it. You know how they play. They know how they play. Um, you wouldn't be surprised it, it comes back and comes back fairly quickly for them. But underwhelmed, yeah. Ever worried about them going down? Not at the moment. Miles away from that. And to be to be realistic, considering what they generally, you know, spend in wages, etc. You know that that's a good place to be. Maybe every other year, even. Not worried about Wolves going down then. What about Arsenal, Jack? Beating 3-0 at the Emirates in hopefully the last pay-per-view game of the season on, on Sunday night by Aston Villa. From what you were tweeting, it sounds like Villa were, were well worthy and, and scored some beautiful goals in this game. Yeah, I thought they were superior in basically every aspect of the game. I thought they were they were organised at the back, kept Arsenal really quiet throughout. And then just the combination of you know Douglas Louise. McGinn, Grealish, Barkley. There's such a creative core there. Players that have license to 
to play their natural game like Grealish you know you almost get tired of going on about it but honestly if he was an Italian playmaker 20 or 30 years ago he'd have the world raving about him just so good and and Barkley has kind of fitted like a glove into that setup has really brought something as well he was fantastic we'll come to Arsenal in more detail but I, I just thought they were so regimented they just didn't have any ideas like it's like a student that kind of is good at revising and passing exams but is kind of not very good at elaborating a a decent answer in conversation they look very book smart and just not particularly um didn't have any kind of creativity any um any fantasy really i thought they were just kind of stuck in their positions and apart from what the wingbacks provided didn't think they really gave aston villa much to think about at all the great kind of burning question about Arteta I suppose is that he you know he obsesses about this structure and this need to have a a way of playing and that's absolutely right but occasionally if the players aren't as good as you would like then occasionally that that you are going to come unstuck playing that way because if a team like Aston Villa who I think are probably the best example of in the Premier League of a team that is run through individual skill with Grealish clearly as that leader but Barkley next to him doing exactly the same thing there's a quite a few sort of mercurial midfielders in that team. Uh, even even players like Matty Cash, a, a, a right-back, you know, it's, these are players who um, will produce nines and fives in the same game. They won't give you constant seven out of ten. And it feels at the moment like Arteta is, is wanting to get seven out of ten out of every player. And um, sometimes you'll come unstuck doing that. Um, he he will. I think he'll probably think that three 0 was slightly flattering to Villa, but the the the, the zero points they took out of the game certainly wasn't, um, because yeah, that that individual magic can sometimes beat the solidity and the structure and the almost kind of perfunctory way of we know what you're going to do every time you get the ball because you've made it so clear in in your last umpteen games. Um, against Manchester United, it worked because Manchester United had no structure and had and on the day had no individual magic either. Um, but Villa did have that individual magic and it, it, it beat them. But is that maybe a negative that Arteta's picked up from working with Guardiola all these years in that, in that there's not a, ma- a massive amount of, of flexibility about, about his game plan or, or maybe his in-game management? I would say he's looked at what he's got and what he's been able to acquire and he's set up a system that doesn't accentuate midfield skill. Um, what it does is kill that area. Where's your strength in that team? Pace, Aubameyang, Lacazette, to some degree, Willian as well. Okay, get it back to front or wide to front quickly. And if that means missing at the midfield to some degree, which is the antithesis of Arsenal Football Club for the last 10, 15, 20 years, whatever, then so be it. Now, I think he's he's just accepting that that's the way it is because of the players that he's got. You know, he had an Ozil, but didn't feel he was hard-working enough, good enough to build the entire team around. So if we've not got a good enough 10, we'll not play with a 10. We'll play with a 3-4-3. Three, three. And you better be good wide areas. Like, well, just exactly what you said, was it Jack or Daniel said there about the wing-backs. They are so important to this system. They've got to give you so much. Is it too obvious, given that they haven't scored from open play in the Premier League in a month, to say just put Aubameyang through the middle for a bit? I would be surprised if he hasn't considered it as an option, partly because we we know that Aubameyang looks a little bit forlorn out on that wing. He looks like he's doing a job rather than flourishing in it. And also because he, he has players like Bukayo Saka, who 
are so flexible that he could pick them on on the left and he can still do multiple jobs from there you know he can still press if you want him to press he can still stay out wide if you want him to do that he can still drift in field if that's what you want um so i am i am slightly surprised yes Alexandre Lacazette looks again looks a little bit half broken really he just they it's, it's really odd in that Arteta's grand master plan is that the structure and the process breeds the confidence so if you if you are confident in the process then you win games and the confidence will come. Whereas actually, Aubameyang and Lacazette, his two flagship attackers, look look, look like they're really lacking confidence at the moment. Um, I think I think the whole playing out of the back thing is is the right idea, and I'm it is it, already produced enough results that I think they should persevere with it. But that's not the only area of the team. Um, the front line is also an area of the team, and and Willian has been their best attacker so far this season. And you're kind of half wonder whether he's still sort of using up his Chelsea energy and his Chelsea confidence rather than his Arsenal confidence. So that's one half of North London. We'll look at Tottenham after this. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Another great advert for pay-per-view football at the Hawthorns on Sunday as Spurs briefly went top courtesy of a late Harry Kane strike beating West Brom by a goal to nil. That was Kane's 150th Premier League goal. Takes him into the top 10 list of all-time leading scorers in the division. He's also got 8-8 eight in eight against West Brom. Um, Daniel, he's still 110 goals behind Alan Shearer albeit he's got 10 more than Shearer had at the same age, 27 years and three months. Is there any chance that you think he can catch him? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, as long as he's happy to stay in the Premier League, then then yes. I mean, he, he seems to take incredibly good care of himself. Um, he We should say in Shearer's defence, not that he needs one, that he suffered at least two career-threatening and certainly career-shaping injuries and in that he basically had to reinvent himself twice from poacher to all-round centre-forward and from all-round centre-forward to to de facto target man towards the end of his career, which Kane's not really had to do other than this kind of shift to a number 10, which um, doesn't seem to have detracted his ability to score goals. So, yes, I mean, why not? Everything feels slightly fairy tale with Harry Kane up until now and that would be the absolute happy ending story. Um, he has this ability that when Tottenham look, you know, um, stunted as they often do against teams that sit deep. Mourinho has found that throughout his career. I remember late on in his Real Madrid tenure, it was kind of defined by their inability to create chances against weaker opposition. But Kane is just that that cheat code that if a chance comes up in the last 10 minutes or the first 10 minutes, he'll probably take it. Um, Jack, could you decode Jose's Insta post after the game where he was cleaning his shoes? I'm puzzled. I haven't seen that. Um, I don't think you'd be any clearer on it, even if you had. <laughs> yeah, I mean, your your confusion probably speaks volumes there. But I, I mean, it, I'm sure he will want to do some task that takes him off that performance because it was it was fairly stodgy from Spurs, albeit against a West Brom side that uh, I thought set up really really smartly. They 
you know, you could see what they were trying to do from the, the first minute. They're really uh, just snapping away at midfield. I thought Conor Gallagher and Philip Kravinovich alongside Jake Livermore were really, really good. They re- reduced the space in there for Spurs and, and Spurs, in that kind of game, you, you start to question what, you know, Moussa Sissoko is really bringing because it was a game that needed quick passing and and that kind of slight bit of uh, nuance, I think, that can break a, a deep-sitting team back. It, it was notable that they improved a fair bit when, when Gio Lo Celso came on. And Gareth Bale, it was a strange performance, doesn't seem to get involved much in the minute-to-minute play. Like he's not really linking up in the passing combinations. He seems to be waiting for, you know, a moment of where he can get a shot away or, or pop up with something a bit out of the blue. But apart from, well, one stretching effort after a cane ball, basically not involved at all. And I think that was probably a pretty solid argument for Spurs not playing with Kane, Son and Bale all together just yet, at least not against that kind of uh, deep defence. Um, Jack mentioned Lo Celso there. Mourinho says he's not fit enough to play for Spurs. Well done, listener, if your ticket had uh, Lo Celso on it in that particular raffle. If you, if you go to the front of the tent, producer Charlie will hand you your prize. Uh, as for West Brom, Pat, it's it's sacking season, or usually is in, in a non-COVID era at least, when teams have got a bit of money to pay off managers. Slavin Bilic may be getting close to to being the first Premier League manager to go. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, favourite with Paddy Power to, to lose his job. Then it's Bilic, then Scott Parker. No wins in eight and arguments with the board. They're not good signs. No, they're not good signs. I was at the first game of the season. I was at West Brom. We played Leicester. And you don't want to jump in with two feet too early. But I said, they're going down. <laughs> they're not good enough. That's it. They're not good enough. And it's, it's horrible and it sounds vicious, and it, but you have to be honest when you're talking about it and just look to them player for player and just say, well, you aren't good enough. So you, your manager can do what you like. Um, you can try and add a wee bit of a different style, a different system, and the work rate's fine. But... For pure quality, not not good enough for the Premier League. And that's I don't dislike West Brom in any way, and West Brom fans can be as annoyed as you like at me. But I'm sure you got to see it. There is a lack of quality. So you can get annoyed with the manager if you like, and you can bring somebody else in. Um, good luck. Because I, I can't see a way. And I'd love to prove wrong. And, and it's not that they're bad players, but just the standard that you need, particularly up front, going forward, creativity, goal scoring, that sort of stuff. It's a distance behind what what's needed, and it's it's a, it's a shame because they'll enjoy their time up. They've not overspent, which is good, um, but they they could. I would be surprised if they're still here in a year's time. And they, they, it's not as if they are trying to play this brilliantly expansive football that got them promoted last season, because it, it wasn't really like that, and it hasn't been like that this season. Um, you know, the reason to sack a manager now, unless the the relationship between board and manager is has broken so irrevocably that they have to make a change. Um, you know, a club would go to a, a firefighter manager and I don't look at, as Pat says, I don't look at those defenders and think that a, a firefighter manager is suddenly going to magic a run of four or five clean sheets in six or seven games out of those players. It just won't happen. I don't think the, the attackers in the Premier League are too good for them. Stand down, Big Sam. Uh, meanwhile, at Stamford Bridge, Chelsea conceded a goal but then ran in full without reply against the Sheffield United side, putting the B-L-A-D-E into beleaguered. Uh, if you think that was laboured, you should have seen Rian Brewster's performance. Pat, are Chelsea going to win the league this season? Um, 
well, I wouldn't say definitely yes, but you know, you actually now have to consider them. I mean, I'd be surprised now if they don't get top four. Um, I didn't think that at the start of the season. So I thought it would take quite some time for the players to gel together. It has taken some time, just not much. Um, but it's looking, every, everyone knows now the, the comfort and that they've got at the back is totally different. Um, I, I wouldn't know who to spend the time talking about because the two players you watch, you go to watch football, and the great thing about the Premier League, now and again you get to see world-class players, I mean really world-class players. And uh, first of all, the obvious one, Ziyech, everybody knows. Uh, I don't know if, Matt, you probably wouldn't have read, but I, I write a column for the Chelsea website every week. And last week, my column ended with, don't care who you drop, don't drop Ziyech. Right? And that was a big call after two games he played, considering the other players that Chelsea have got. Don't drop him. You can't drop that guy. His creativity is exactly what Chelsea have needed, and it is world-class. I don't know if he's going to keep on doing that against the very, very best teams. We still have to see that. But wow for his delivery and wow for his creativity. Um, almost a bit of hazard and a bit of Fabregas together. Isn't that a dream scenario? But the other one is, uh, I just sit there with a big beaming grin on my face when I watch Thiago Silva play football. He is fabulous beyond fabulous. And he's 36. It's a, a discussion I had with some people. I'll very quickly tell you this. Remember the 7-1? The, the, the that's 7-1, right? Germany against Brazil. And everyone said, oh, it's because Neymar's not playing. No, it's not. <laughs> it's because Thiago Silva wasn't playing. And nobody said that. And a lot of us were saying that. Um, look, they're a good team, uh, Chelsea. They're a joy to watch. They've scored more goals than anyone else in the league this season. But in those two, they've got two players that are absolutely, for, for connoisseurs of football, they're just lovely to go and watch them, stand and watch and watch Natalia. Jack, has there been much said about Thiago Silva's foray into into the Premier League in Brazil? Yeah, I think I think people are slightly surprised at him taking this challenge at this age. Obviously, he was even back in his Milan days regarded as he was, you know, called the next um, Baresi. I think, but even Baresi kind of named him as his successor. So he's someone who has been. Um, I think probably due to the fact he was playing in France has been slightly underrated over the last decade or so. But I think, yeah, definitely just the timing of it. I think people thought that he had the ability to cut it in the Premier League because he's been very consistent in the Champions League that whole time. But to do so at 36, not the quickest anymore. And I think you need to play in a certain way when you have him in the team. You can't afford to be playing the high line that so many Premier League teams like to play. Uh, but I think the way... Chelsea have gone about it has, has been really good. Zuma is obviously very athletic, can sweep in behind if needed. But I think an underrated part of what Thiago Silva brings is, is just the communication side of it. I think he's, he's a very good talker. He's a very good organiser. Both for He's been that for Brazil for many years and I think it's quite telling that he's still pretty central to their system at this age and he wants to go to the next World Cup if he keeps playing like this, I don't think that's beyond the realm of possibility. Um, Daniel, you can talk about Sheffield United. They have been getting beaten narrowly. Now they've been beaten fairly heavily. I'm sure you saw that stat at the weekend about teams with their, with their meagre points return at this stage getting relegated in, in all but two cases. It's a long way off from the start of last season, but really since Project Restart, they've been pretty poor and it looks like it's going to take a while to turn the ship around. 
Yeah, the, the caveat is they've had a pretty rotten fixture list at the start of this season. Um, but I did a, a piece on them in the week and the number of tackles in midfield and the, the, the number of sprints in midfield has, seems to have dropped fairly noticeably. I think we're talking sort of 25 to 30%, um, which basically has such a knock-on effect. It means they're not winning the ball as much in midfield. It means they're winning it close to their own goal, which means they're generally hitting the ball long to Ollie McBurney, who is becoming isolated because players are having to drop deeper. Um, they're attempting, they, they were brilliant at crosses last season and they seem to be now attempting them from sort of 40 yards out of goal and floating them into the box, hoping to find a head rather than that, that cliche of the, the central defender overlapping and crossing from near the byline. Um, so I th- but I think it all stems from that intensity. Now, maybe that's only natural given the, the highs of last season that there would be a drop-off, but the one sort of positive spin to the rotten start is that you know, minds should be put into full focus now that no team... The, the thing with teams like Burnley and Sheffield United is that every year in the Premier League is year, year zero. What you did last season doesn't matter anymore because you haven't got the resources to rest on your laurels in that sense. And if, the moment you do, you'll get found out. So if, if that is what's happened and they have been found out, then then they need to start, you know, pulling their socks up pretty quickly because... Um, when you get into a slump like they are, it doesn't matter all the time if the fixtures are easy because the pressure on those fixtures only becomes greater. Also in London on Saturday, Crystal Palace had an SA time, an easy time of it against Leeds. Uh, they inflicted a second successive 4-1 defeat on Bielsa's boys. Daniel's fellow alumnus Patrick Bamford finished on the losing side. At the centre of things again, though, he might even have got a call-up to the England squad by the time you hear this, depending on that Marcus Rashford injury. Um, We've got to really talk about that first, Daniel, haven't we? The, the goal that wasn't that, that Bamford had disallowed before he scored. Yeah, I mean, all I'll say again is exactly what you can you can replay Pat's point from earlier because unfortunately, like them or not, those are the rules now. We now draw or Royal We draw the lines up the 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 horrible dotted line that is I will say absolutely guessed on the frame rate. I've got no faith in it being accurate, but that's the frame we use. And if the dotted line goes up to the line um, on the shirt then that's offside. You know, that, that that shirt line was used for handball, basically, because it was if it hits your shoulder, it shouldn't be, or if it hits the top of the arm, it shouldn't be handball. But if that if it isn't handball, then it means you can score with it, which means you can be offside with it. So it's right by the rules. Do I have any faith in them? No. Do I like them? No. But I feel like that's a bit of a broken record. Well done, Palace, for scoring four goals at home, which is not something they do very often. And that free kick from Eberich Eze was particularly delicious. Jack, what, what did you make at Leeds, though? Because there seemed to sort of be a lot of love for them at the start of the season, the style of play. Everybody seems to like Marcelo Bielsa. They seem to concede four goals every other week. It's not sustainable. Yeah, that's right. I think they'll be looking forward to the time they can play Diego Llorente, who was their big um, centre-back signing. I think pretty much seen as the person to kind of lift the level of the defence. You know, Liam Cooper's a good player and and Robin Cock, I think, is still getting up to speed to a certain degree. I, I think Urente is seen as kind of the defensive leader, naturally, when he gets up to fitness. But, yeah, certainly that there's plenty of reason for concern there. I think the way that Palace got in down the flanks in particular. I've been to see Leeds in person once this season against Fulham. And they were 4-1 up. I think they were 4-1 up, right? And honestly, I was doing commentary and laughing. How often do you laugh during it? 
because they were 4-1 up and they had seven players breaking into the box when there absolutely was no need to do it and Fulham broken them and scored. And I thought, oh, you'll figure that one out. You won't do that again. Nope, done it again. Flying all forward. And I'm going, what are you doing? Nobody does that. It's madness beyond belief. I love it, <laughs> but it's madness. And they lost another goal. And they nearly actually lost uh, two of the points. They, they hung on for the 4-3. But at 4-1 up, they were still asking every single player to fly forward. And there was no structure defensively whatsoever. It was... And when you've been watching the Premier League as long as we have, you know there's got, there should be a structure at some point. You know, the sitting midfielder will wait while the two fullbacks are going, all that sort of stuff. Nah, we won't go for that. I was walking off afterwards and I was walking out the door and, and as, as I walked downstairs, Bielsa was walking out beside me and we walked within two yards of each other all the way back and I promise you, I kid you not, he had a safe way back. And he just, he just walked out. I thought... Oh, God, I love you. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be mad, but I love you. There does seem to be this kind of slight backlash from fans of rival clubs who, who invariably, who, who have beaten Leeds to say, well, where's our love in? And, and to an extent, managers have, have done that as well. Brendan Rodgers, you know, after Brendan Rodgers is less who had beaten Leeds, he said, well, I probably won't get any credit for this because I'm British, which I don't think was a, a kind of vaguely xenophobic point I think he was saying look everyone's been falling over themselves to praise Bielsa but where's my praise but the reason we we praise it is because of exactly what Pat says it's because it's as a neutral there's something incredibly refreshing about that for for Leeds fans it's for better for worse for opposition managers it, it might feel like it sticks in the throat a little bit but it's been a long time since we've had a promoted team who have tried to play so expansively um, and that is refreshing and I don't think anyone should offer any apologies for that um, nor should we you know, nor should we fail to criticise them when they concede eight goals in two games. But um, yeah, there is. you go to watch Leeds games now and you, you can almost guarantee that it's going to be exciting one way or the other and you don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, wasn't that exciting at the London Stadium? West Ham beat Fulham by a goal to nil. Not exciting in, until the last couple of minutes anyway. It wasn't Thomas Suchek's late winner, which was the, the big talking point. Even though there was a sickly stench of offside about it, it was the stinker of a Penenka from Adamola Luckman. Aklak Hanif tweeting, Instead of the Penenka, should Fulham's Adamola have gone for the no-look-man penalty? Hashtag, sorry. Um, Pat, I feel like you can sympathise with, with Adamola a little bit here. See, I, I actually am on Twitter and I, I post at least once every six months, right? Um, but I did check it after that. And yes, as I suspected, people were saying, that's nearly as bad as your penalty part. <laughs> Nevin, oh dear, I dear, I don't believe it. I hope I'm not being too unkind to Pat Nevin, a player of undoubted quality, but it has to be the worst penalty I've ever seen at this level of football. I'm always mildly offended when anyone suggests they've taken a worse penalty than me. But it was that bad. It was nearly as bad as mine. It really was. But <laughs> <laughs> for Chelsea, I had this dreadful penalty. To be fair, it, A, it was on target, and B, it nearly reached the keeper. Um, but honestly, it, it was awful. The difference being, I walked away laughing my head off because we were 4-1 up and it was a cup game. Lookman, can I do that? Because he's just dropped his team's chances of a point there and that's when it's serious that's when it hurts that's when you know and it wasn't even a Panenka he chucked it halfway through didn't he he kind of changed his mind bottled it chucked it got confused fearful whatever 
Um, and if you do a panenka, there is one thing you need above everything else, above even more than technique, you need confidence. That wasn't confident, was it? Yeah, Scott Parker not happy. I think he was making some valid points in his in his post match interview. But but all I can think about when Scott Parker's talking now is which street song would sound <laughs> best underneath it. I think it was fit, but you know it actually for for Saturday's post match. Um, Fulham Daniel not looked good of late, but but better of late. I would say any any chance they could defy expectation and stay up. I think it, it probably relies on them. Um... In recent years, when Fulham have been in the Premier League, I've basically thought that this, this squad is too weird to stay up. They've got, you know, and even when it's not too weird, they'll go and buy Ryan Babel and Andre Schiller in January um, to make it too weird. <laughs> now, or the way I watch them play at the moment, they they just look too safe. And the players aren't good enough, I don't think, to play safe. They, they've got Ruben Loftus-Cheek on loan and he, he's been on the bench the last two games. I, I think they need a courage of, of conviction um, that... Um, almost goes for broke because I think if they don't then they are just going to go down without a fight they are they're more than West Brom I would see the value in potentially changing the manager sometime soon because I think that's how Scott Parker likes to do things that's how they they did it last season they relied on Mitrovic's goals they won games by the you know by the odd goal and they ground them out when they had to and they kind of came into that automatic promotion picture out of nowhere but they it looks as if he's just slightly run out of ideas, I think. And, you know, the, the failure to get Ruben Loftus-Cheek may not decide them going up or down, but I do think it's slightly representative of a, a sort of safety-first mentality that with the central defenders they've got, I'm not sure they're good enough to pull off. Uh, way back on Friday night, Southampton went top of the table. Hasenhutl's heroes bested the ever-aesthetically-pleasing Newcastle United. Big responsibility, Jack, on, on Shea Adams for, for the next six weeks or so with Danny Ings out. He's up to three Premier League goals for the season now. Only got four in the whole of last term. And, and yeah, Southampton were top of the league for a bit. Yeah, I think Adams is looking really sharp. Has done since we restarted after after the first lockdown. Obviously, a big move for him at the start of last season. I think he did look a little bit overwhelmed and it wasn't that surprising that he was taken out of the the spotlight. But his relationship with Ings has obviously developed massively and I thought the way he linked up with Walcott was pretty solid as well. I enjoyed seeing Thea Walker up front again like it were back in 2013 or something. And the way that he stretched the play, I've just brought a little element of chaos. And Adams is a very, very smart Mover. I don't think he's particularly stand out in pace or certainly not a physical presence, but I, I, I like the movements he makes. I like the errors he gets into. Um, he's missed a few chances so far this season. I think he could have had more goals, but very smartly taken volley. And yeah, I think if Southampton now have two strikers who they can can expect to get solidly into double figures, I think that would do wonders for their chances of you know, be looking top half at the minimum, I would think. Brighton nil, Burnley nil, notable in my house for, for my son constructing his first full sentence uh, when this game was on the highlights. He said, I don't want to watch this, let's turn it off. <laughs> and he was right to do so. Um, Daniel, we've spoken a bit about Burnley and them being a bit rubbish, frankly, so far this season. But I feel like Brighton have kind of got away with it a little bit because their their style is pretty easy on the eye. But here they are with one win from their opening eight games. Yeah, I mean, last season their big their big problem was finishing chances, and this season their big problem is finishing chances. And um, they look to have, it, it, they kind of created a bit of a false dawn at the start of the season. They scored um, 
sure they scored goals against against Chelsea and against Everton against Manchester United um but they 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 only solved that or seem to have solved that problem because they were creating a huge amount of chances and then since then they've gone back to their normal in the last four games they scored three goals from 50 shots and one of them was an own goal um Graham Potter seems to be trying everything you know he played Welbeck and Morpé on Friday or he plays sometimes play Aaron Connolly sometimes played Leandro Trossard but the reality is that none of them are strikers who are guaranteed or dependable to score goals regularly I don't think in the Premier League um, and they are nice to watch but at both ends of the pitch they just seem intent on tripping themselves up and that's a recipe for for getting yourself in serious trouble because if you kind of persuade yourself that everything's okay and that eventually the method will win out and all will come good suddenly it can be February and you're two points off the bottom three and everyone starts to panic a little bit which is is to to you know I'm ashamed to give you any credit Matt but it's exactly what happened with Bournemouth last season um you know you predicted them to go down and the reality is they looked okay and weren't quite getting the results we thought they deserved and then they suddenly got haunted by this looming prospect of relegation and never quite dug themselves out of it I'm going on a Bournemouth podcast on Wednesday night, by the way. That'll be a quiet night in the library. <laughs> right, shortly we're going to talk Football Aid Scotland and round off the rest of the news from the weekend. But first, let's get some odds with Lee Price of Paddy Power. Hello again, listeners. With the lead of the Premier League changing hands faster than a government contract and an old Tory chum, it's perhaps no surprise we have no clear favourite in our title betting. Liverpool Man City, who were evenly matched on Sunday afternoon, in terms of fitness anyway, with both teams packing up shop after half-time, are each priced at 7-5 joint favourites to be champions, which is slightly odd as neither team is currently top of the table. In fact, Man City aren't even top half of the table. Tottenham currently sit second after their one-hour stint as champions and are 15-2 to to win the league. The same price as Chelsea, the division's top scorers at the minute, and have kind of gone about their business quietly, well, as quietly as Chelsea can muster. Those two are 15-2 to two to finish top. Beyond that, currently there's Leicester a 30-1 to one to be champions again, which sounds good until I say this. That's the same price as Manchester United. Well, in that case, might as well make it 5,000 to 1 again, eh? And a quick note on relegation after Adamola Lookman single-handedly relegated Fulham. They were already down by our book. We have West Brom and Burnley odds-on to join them. Sheffield United can't get a result for love nor money, but we do think they'll stay up. It's even as they get relegated. Have a lovely international week, chums. See you soon. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Uh, on this day in football history, the 9th of November, it's the 20-year anniversary of Roy Keane taking aim at fans in the Old Trafford hospitality boxes after a Champions League group stage win over Dynamo Kiev. He said they have a few drinks, probably the prawn sandwiches, and they don't realise what's going on out on the pitch. Um, Jack, you took Team Totally to Porto's top sandwich place during the Nations League finals. Just just remind us what that sandwich consisted of and why it's so special. Uh, yes, we were staying in Porto, whose traditional sandwich is called the Francesinha, the little Frenchie. Um, it's probably the least French thing I've ever encountered. It's... It's essentially a like a, a depth charge of bread, cheese, about two kinds of sausage, ham, more cheese, more bread, more cheese, and then with a, with a hot sauce, oh, and an egg, then a hot sauce kind of blasted over it so it's all melting. Um, it's the kind of thing you have to try. 
you probably wouldn't be rushing back for another one within six months or so. But I enjoyed it mainly just because of how much Michael Cox hated it. <laughs> Daniel, I've got you pegged as a, a chicken and avocado kind of guy. No, I actually, uh, at university, I live with a, a guy who um, was doing Brazilian Portuguese at university and we, we had a week in Porto. So I, I know the very sandwich well. Possibly uh, even the it? same shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I have had it. Maybe even from the same shop because we spent some time in, in Porto. How about you, Pat? You're a well-travelled man. Have you, have you had this sandwich I'd never heard of until two minutes ago? I've been there, but I've never had the sandwich. It has to be said. <laughs> That's the right plan. <laughs> and I am basically a, a bucket. I would have tried it, haven't given an opportunity. <laughs> um, Pat, the reason that you're here today is as an ambassador for Football Aid. It's a, it's a charity that's been raising money for the last 20 years for a whole range of charities and community projects, including diabetes research and mental health through the likes of Head Together, Mind and Calm. Uh, on the 18th of this month, their mega memorabilia auction will take place. Up till then, you can bid on match-worn shirts from all sorts of Premier League and EFL players. You can also bid on a pair of Peter Crouch's boots, a Spurs 2011-12 home shirt signed by Gareth Bale and Luka Modric as well. You can find out more and get bidding at footballaid.com. That's F-O-O-T-B-A-L-L-A-I-D.com. Pat, you've, you've put a Scotland kit up for auction as well, haven't you? Yeah, what what is it? I'm, I've been involved in a number of charities over the years, but I, I'll be honest, this is my favourite, and it has been forever. And I've been I've been on the board and things like that, simply because it's the perfect idea. I've never come across an idea like it. So if you don't know about football aid, in most years, unlike this year, most years what you do is you go online and you can play football for your team playing in the kit in the stadium. So if you're a Chelsea fan, you play at Stamford Bridge. You change the dressing rooms, you walk on, we film it, um, and you play against a lot of other people who have gone online and, you know, they've bid for a strip and you got to play. I've been playing it every year for 20 years, um, be it at Stamford Bridge or Everton or Man United, you know, all these places. They are brilliant, brilliant things. And the great thing is you put this money towards it and you've given money to charity. Well done, you. And then you get a memory you will never forget for the rest of your life, ever. It is the most perfect idea for a charity. And well done the clubs for accepting Football Aid's idea initially. Lots of people have copied it, but Football Aid was their original. But we can't do it this year. Uh, obviously, it's been impossible for us to put it on this year because of uh, what's happened with COVID. So the idea is to try and raise money from other ways. Now, Football Aid has got lots of tentacles around football and uh, been able to get a lot of different things that we can uh, auction off. Um, and at the end of every game, if I play in a game my Scotland strip, I've always just given it back to Football Aid, signed it, auctioned that off, and that's what we've done with everyone. So if you go into the Football Aid website, there's a lot of stuff there. It is an absolutely brilliant um, charity. The great thing about it, just like the games themselves most years, you get something worthwhile. You go and give money to charity and you get something worthwhile. Um, it's a great charity. I can't, I can't speak highly enough about the people that are involved in it. Um, and I've kind of, I just love the whole concept and the final game of football I ever play in my life, I promise you, will be a football league game. Footballleague.com for more information on that. Um, Daniel, you collect football memorabilia, I'm sure. You also got to wear on one of the live shows uh, an England jacket from, from the pre-Euro 96 tour that had, that had an was, interesting note inside. I think it was earlier than that. I think it, uh, I think it might have been 86, maybe even. Um, but yeah, so it was, a, it, was a, it was with classic football shirts. 
um, and we each got to choose a football shirt and I was allowed to choose a football shirt like everyone else and then I saw this I think it was a Bobby Robson England jacket so I th- and I think it was World Cup 86 and so I was like oh I'd really like to wear that and yeah so I wore that and then just as I was before I was going onto the stage I put my hand in the pocket and found this little note in the pocket that said um, and this is where I should dissociate myself from the fact that it it was an England jacket it was not necessarily the England manager's jacket um, because it had this note that just had the name of some young lady and then a hotel room and then an address written on it, which is absolutely, yeah, brilliant. And it had obviously been folded in there, having been dry cleaned and pressed in numerous times and was just, yeah, still in the pocket. I was talking to somebody and they asked me if I kept strips and I said, well, not many. I've never been a big memorabilia person, but I found one and, it, and I didn't recognise where it's come from because I played against, I can't remember playing against... France, and I'd played against France for Scotland. I couldn't remember it. And uh, anyway, so I looked at the strips. I'm showing you here. You can all see it. Very, very old school. I must have been very young when I played in that game. Anyway, I'd never given it a thought. Anyway, this guy got hold of me. He said, have you never checked whose strip it was? And I went, well, I've never thought. You know, I just was young. was Whatever. So I looked at the team, and I've shown you the number. You can see the number. Apparently there's a bloke called Canton I was playing that night. <laughs> <laughs> wow, and we're in nine, not seven. Well, no, he was nine back then because he was centre forward back then. Wow. He was seven when he was young. So, uh, <laughs> and I had no idea. I found this out about four weeks ago. <laughs> Pat Nevin accidentally has a better football memorabilia collection than I deliberately have, which is... <laughs> <laughs> well, can you imagine how I feel? I'm sat here now in my best piece of football memorabilia. Not best, maybe most tragic in a way. This is a classic lockdown one purchase. I'm showing it on the Zoom. You can't see it, listener. This is one of Khalid Boularus's old training tops from his four deeply unsuccessful years as a Stuttgart player uh, that came with a note saying, this is from Khalid. I can confirm it was mine. Um, Jack, can you beat that? Uh, not for tragicness, no, <laughs> definitely not. Um, I'm not a big collector either, but I've I've got a program from when Santos came over and played Plymouth Argyle at Home Park. Oh, in please the, tell me you've got the. T- please tell me you've got the signature on it. Uh, it's unsigned, unfortunately, <sighs> but yeah, it's uh, it's full of little write-ups, full of like uh, all of the stereotypes you'd associate with people from Devon writing about Pele. It's great. Very much the middle of the Jack Lang Venn diagram, that isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes wish this would be something you could actually show, isn't it? Oh, Pele to P. Nevin. To P. Nevin. Thanks. Say five Pat's holding us up a card that says to P. Nevin. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, very much Edison Pele. Pele. Wow. Oh, What's awesome. he thanking you for? I, I took care of him. On, I had uh, five hours in his company one evening. I had to take care of him. Um, and we had the most fabulous evening. And he invited me to come and stay in Brazil with him. And I had to turn them down. <laughs> That's a pretty good story. But still, I've got Khalid Bularus' shirt. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, right, the Totally Football League show out on Monday. Mel Morris sold Derby County on Friday. Uh, the new owners, should they pass the fit and proper persons test, inheriting a team bottom of the championship. That despite Sheffield Wednesday's points deduction. Huh. 
the gang will cover every championship game and a bit of FA Cup action too. Faker others holding the fort in my absence. Uh, Daniel and I both pleased that we won the Totally Derby against Duncan's Mob Wickham. So that's nice. A totally Scottish football show out on Tuesday with special guest Kevin Gallagher. The Offside Rule WSL edition also out on Tuesday. Alex Morgan coming off the bench for her first WSL appearance. Spurs, though, still winless. Man United top the table. They beat Arsenal by a goal to nil on Sunday. And the Totally Football Show European edition is released on Tuesday with Matt Davis-Adams. Good grief. Uh, we'll be talking about Der Classica, another thriller and another Bayern win. Massive week for Scotland then, Pat. You're, you're doing the game against Serbia on Thursday night. Chance to qualify for a major tournament for the first time in over 20 years for, for the Euros that are definitely going to take place next summer. Uh, do, do you think they can do it? Um, well... We're certainly outsiders. However, I think in these uh, COVID times, it's very, very important that people don't travel unless they, they've got complete um, backing from their, their their competition and their league. So Syria have said that uh, they're not letting their players travel. So that means Milankovic, Milankovic, Savic, Juricic, Lukic, Lakovic and uh, Kolarov might not be able to play. And if they don't play, we've got a chance. Excellent. Uh, that's just about it for today. Many thanks to Daniel, to Pat, to Jack and to producer Charlie, but mainly to you, listeners. Stay safe. We'll catch up again on Thursday. For now, though, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Muddy Knees Media.